a vital cog in the Australian manufacturing landscape. Can it make a comeback? I think we need to try and ensure that we, I guess, uh, achieve supply chain diversification as we see growing demand for the wool fibre. And lessons learnt from thousands of years of Indigenous fire management. These are super unique, these grasslands in the Surrey Hills estate. They've got conservation covenants on them. That's how important they are. They provide habitat for rare and threatened uh, orchids, Tanara brown butterfly, just to name a few. Forestry management company Forico shares some insights into enhancing conservation values in their northwest estate. We'll also take a look at a program helping farmers start a new commercial tree enterprise. There's money available to establish trees. Details on that scheme a bit later after the weather. Larissa Smith with you until one and feel free to jump in on the text line to 0438 922-936 is the number you need to touch base with the program today. Well, let's start with fruit and veg because the value of Australia's horticultural production went up last year despite major flooding at the end of 2022 and a huge drop in the value of almonds. And that's Australia's most valuable horticultural export. That's according to the Annual Statistics Handbook released today by Horticulture Research and Development Group, Hort Innovation. Its Industry Insights Manager, Lucy Noble, says the industry has grown remarkably despite big setbacks. Essentially, we're seeing some really optimistic growth across the entire horticulture industry. The overall value of the industry has gone up 2.8% to reach $16.25 billion. And we're seeing some really optimistic um, and positive signs, particularly for a lot of our fruit lines, where we've seen the value of the industry grow remarkably, and particularly for some of those Victorian categories around table grapes. And then also further up north in avocados, we've also seen some really optimistic growth We've seen some good encouraging signs within the vegetable industry as well, which is quite a mainstay in Victoria. Um, So generally speaking, we're seeing some good signs, but that's not to say that it hasn't been a challenging year for a lot of our growers. This report covers the 2023 financial year, which of course includes those massive floods that we had at the end of 2022. It was interesting to see the overall value of vegetable production went up despite that. Could you talk me through that a little bit? So we've seen in the last, in FY23, we've seen vegetable value come up 5.4%. And optimistically, that growth has come across quite broadly the entire vegetable category. Um, There has been some kind of drivers of growth, but generally speaking, we're just seeing some solid growth across a lot of a lot of the vegetable lines. I think an important one within the vegetable one to take note of is that we're still seeing that volume share come down. So volume came down nearly 3% in FY23, which is in recognition of the fact that it's still a lot of our East Coast growers in particular within vegetables are still looking to regroup and recover from essentially the last two or three years of floods that have really affected those lines. And so we're still seeing that kind of stabilisation of supply and demand so the value is going up, the volume's gone down. Does that mean that farmers mm-hmm. have gotten a bit more money in their pockets over the last 12 months? If only it was as simple as that. No, that does, that's not necessarily the case um, at all and that's not what we're seeing. But what we are seeing is that obviously quite basic supply-demand principles is that as demand or as supply sorry, is diminished, we are seeing that price come up for the commodities that are, that are making it to market. And when we're seeing volume recover in some of the industries, but it is actually just a few 
vegetable lines in particular that have been badly affected by um by the recuperating of volumes. So it's just a few of the a few of the industries in particular where volume hasn't recovered to the same extent. And which industries were the most affected by the floods? We're seeing it. We're seeing large dips in volume, particularly within within vegetables from tomatoes. So that was down 120,000 tonnes, which was actually was the difference between the production volumes of 2022 to 2023. So that was the primary driver of volumes within the vegetable lines coming back. We're seeing it also within onions. We saw volumes come back for some of the smaller categories as well, which when they are smaller categories and the overall production is less, it can have a large difference. So for things like asparagus, for cabbage, for carrots as well, we're seeing volumes come back across the board for those categories as well within vegetable lines. And turning to nuts now, nuts have been a bit of a loser in this this particular report. There's been a huge decrease in particularly the value of nuts over the last 12 months and also a bit of a drop in the volume. Can you talk me through what's been behind that? Yeah, you're right. In terms of a, a standout of performance, and where we're seeing value, value really come back this year was in the nut lines, as you said, value came back 42% on the prior year. <clears throat> and that is being driven by largely by almonds and macadamias, but we're seeing value come back for almost all the nut lines um, apart from hazelnuts. And the reason for this is it's a complex, so a little bit of a complex answer, Elsie, but it kind of comes back to the, at the moment, the global supply of um, nuts over the last year has really increased. And so it's where we're seeing changes in the export opportunities for nuts um, and the value is coming back somewhat there. Australia's most valuable horticultural export is is almonds. So a big drop in that one commodity could have a big impact, couldn't it? That's Yeah, that's, that's completely correct. And I think one thing to take note of is the fact that we have seen quite a significant drop in value of those nut lines, but we've also seen a really significant growth in those industries. And as you said, in the almond industry, we've seen the value of exports in almonds grow by 200, 300% over the last 10 years. And so there has been a significant growth in those lines. But that's not to take away from the fact that, as you said, it is really, it's a large comeback on the last few years of performance in particular. Mm. That was Hort Innovation Industry Insights Manager Lucy Noble speaking to Elsie Kennedy about the latest figures around horticultural production in the country. Back home in Tasmania, uh, farmers produced around $324 million worth of potatoes last year, about $60 million worth of cherries, um, $74 million worth of onions and peas uh, in Tasmania. Growers here are the largest producers of peas in the country in value and volume, $59 million worth of peas. The humble pea harvest is wrapping up there as well. Are you a dream builder or a thrill seeker? You need to be born without fear. A daring traveller or a joy giver? It's just intoxicating, this place. You'll find all your kindred spirits together on ABC iView. This is amazing! With a bounty of programs like Joanna Lomley's Spice Trail Adventure, Grand Designs Transformations, Muster Dogs and so much more. Come on, puppies! It's all there for you. Always free, always inspiring on ABC iView. Well, let's continue that conversation we've been having for the last, uh, well, week or two on the ship stranded off the West Australian coast, the live export vessel, because 
the head of a group uh, representing meat processors in Australia says he doesn't think any meat abattoir in Australia is ready to start processing those sheep. The Federal Department of Agriculture rejected an application to re-export the livestock on board the MV Bahaja around Africa to Israel. And now many are asking what will happen to the livestock on board. Patrick Hutchinson from the Australian Meat Industry Council says if the animals are to be killed in Australia, it will take some time to organise. We uh, don't really know what the process is going to be at the moment. We haven't been given any, any sort of guidance at all. Obviously, this is a departmental decision to withdraw the, um, the, the export permit. However, it's still a commercial decision from the exporter as to what they do. So we're not compelled to process. They're not compelled to sell to us. Uh, potentially, they could uh, background these animals again and then uh, put them back uh, after a long spell to be re-exported if they're still in spec. We, we don't have any idea. So at this stage, all we know is these animals will you know, be re- unloaded and um, you know, then the commercial uh, reality of the whole process will take its course. There, there's an extra layer to this, though, isn't there, around the debate of live export, but also the processing capacity of uh, Western Australia to process animals like this. Large processors in WA say they're at capacity until about April. So I suppose that leaves smaller processors or even other states to kill these animals if they're not backgrounded. D- does that highlight constraints in the processing industry? There, there always are some constraints at any uh, uh, particular time like around Australia. I think as well we probably should uh, recognise that I don't think any uh, processor in the country would be able to all of a sudden start processing 15,000 sheep as opposed to all of those other producers who have been uh, working, on their, uh, working on their livestock, diligently waiting, everything being set up, and then next minute, sorry, uh, we now have to process these. For some people, 15,000 sheep could well be you know, four days' kill out of six. So, look, there, there are many and varied ways if uh, processors were compelled to process these, including weekends, uh, to 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 manage those, um, splitting them up, etc. So all of those would be there. But as I said previously, the scenario is is that this is a department's decision not to grant them an export license. So they'll be unloaded. That that exporter will make a commercial decision around that. And big picture is something you do in your role, right? So big picture, does this do events like this highlight the need for further investment or support for processing capacity in WA? I think in WA we've um, uh, had this discussion uh, obviously quite a lot over the last six months. We have provided the necessary information about what does an expanded uh, meat processing um, uh, industry in WA look like. But again, you know, we've got to be absolutely clearly vital about how we manage this. And the reason that we do that is is in too many times over the last 100 years in this country, we have expanded capacity in processing only to have either climatic conditions or many other things un- be undertaken in order to ensure that uh, uh, we then have an undersupply or we have an oversupply of workers. This is about looking at how can we effectively invest into the future around innovation and many other op- uh, opportunities to allow us to then uh, uh, you know, expand uh, the WA meat processing uh, capacity, but in a way that is manageable and that doesn't put strain on those processing companies that all of a sudden they could have you know, machines, they can have structures and systems idle 
uh, for periods of time. These government department decisions are happening at a time the government is investigating its plan to phase out live export of sheep from Australia as a policy. As meat processors in Australia, you're not taking part in live export, but do you have a position on whether live export of sheep could, should continue? No, we don't have a position, Warwick. It's nothing to do with us. Um, uh, live sheep uh, in Western Australia and live cattle uh, are a competitor to us and uh, they take a certain type of livestock uh, at a certain time uh, in a lot of circumstances with sheep very much out of specification for the domestic market uh, and certainly more uh, uh, you know in, in uh, that export market uh, it, very much the same so it's very much horses for courses um, um, yeah, we don't have any position in regards to uh, live export they're a competitor and that's that's that so with that in mind given you work with that industry but you also stand to benefit if it's phased out how do you think their government's handling this issue with this boat look i think that the, there's a lot of moving parts in regards to this boat there's a lot of scenarios that we've put forward uh, that have been put forward to us and others i think that in this time what happened has happened has been that it's very opaque in regards to decision making and as such, uh, once the Secretary of the Department has come in, uh, you know, there's certainly been a, a pretty quick um, resolution to that. So I think where the frustrations have lied for a lot of people is they've not really understood how the decision-making process goes, but also um, we've got to remember that the uh, current regulatory, regulatory environment means that the exporter is making most of the decisions. So the the uh, the department can only make a decision based on if uh, based on what an exporter wants to make a decision on. Do you want to go a certain spot? Do you want to unload? Do you want to unload some, etc. So that's what we've heard. But again, from a processing perspective, you know we've just been an observer around this process in order to ensure that we're ready if you know we're compelled to do something. I think probably more importantly to one of your points around we stand to benefit. I think we've got to keep remembering currently these sheep as they are uh, when they are exported are out of spec for most of our markets. Now, if uh, live sheep were to, to cease, in fact, it's actually about the producer's decision to want to continue to produce sheep. Patrick Hutchinson, CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council, speaking there to Warwick Long. And livestock reporter Richard Bailey will join us closer to one for the latest on livestock prices this week. Shifting to wool now, and Australian farmers export 80% of their wool for processing in China. But could the industry wind back the clock and restart domestic manufacturing? A new Commonwealth-funded report has looked at a business case for early-stage processing in Australia and earmarked three potential locations. Adam Dawes is the General Manager at Wool Producers Australia and he told reporter Josh Becker there is a good case for diversifying the wool supply chain. Yeah, I think, Josh, there's an obvious need for um, increased diversification of wool processing. As listeners would be aware, the vast majority of our wool trending around about 80% of the wool that we produce currently all goes to China for processing. 50% of that is retained in China through until the point of retail consumption and the other 50% is exported to third countries either as final products or intermediate wool products. And with that market concentration and that reliance on a single market, there's some obvious trade risks that come about. So diversification of trade would be a good thing for the Australian wool industry, be that 
domestic processing to diversified countries or sending greasy wool or potentially scoured wool to diversified food countries would also be a good thing. Wool growers have often raised concerns about the over-reliance on one main buyer for Australian wool, but some other analysts have argued that it's actually a symbiotic relationship where China is reliant as well on Australia to keep those mills running. And that's one of the key reasons that some say that it wasn't targeted like wine and barley were with tariffs. Do you see any merit to that kind of argument? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we certainly acknowledge that the the relationship that we've got with the Chinese wool processors is an extremely valuable one and it will continue to be valuable in the future. I think we need to try and ensure that we, I guess, uh, achieve supply chain diversification as we see growing demand for the wool fibre. And I think that growing demand and the capacity that will serve that demand can be established in potential growth markets like India, Bangladesh and Vietnam that have also been assessed as part of this work. You've commissioned this significant report from Deloitte um, where it looks at some potential opportunities for the industry to look at early stage wool processing. Uh, What did it find? What this piece of work has now looked to do is to really develop some roadmaps and some tangible pathways of how we can implement that domestic and diversified processing. So now the the findings of this report and the really, um, I think it's evidenced by the reports, there's quite a bit of work that's been done, now needs to be taken back into the industry representative groups to work on how we pursue the delivery of that trade room risk mitigation on behalf of the broader Australian wool industry and particularly Australian growers. And and largely the locations that were assessed were logically locations that have previously processed wool. So Australia processed a lot of the wool that we grew to some extent up until the 1990s, at which time it started to get offshored due to cost of processing and it followed lower cost processing markets. What we came up with after that multi-criteria assessment and the risk assessment was the preferred locations to look at going forward would be a Metro Vic or a uh, Riverina, New South Wales or potentially a a South Australian um, Green Triangle type option. As I understand it, Metropolitan Victoria was the, the number one choice on the list? Yeah, that was the one that stacked up most most strongly. I think the other thing that we need to recognise in terms of Metrovic being the preferred location, there's just such such an aggregation of wools of different types and options for procuring wools for a processing facility in Melbourne. So that's that provides a distinct advantage over, say, a regional location. It's not to say that, you know, an investor might have other criteria that weren't taken into account that might favour another location or perhaps a location that wasn't even considered. Have you crunched the numbers on the business case and and whether it makes sense? Yeah, look, I think, Josh, it's got to be looked at from the perspective of an investor that's floating around with, you know, the tens of millions of dollars of capital investment that a project like this would require. Um, If they're looking to park their money somewhere, uh, early stage wool processing probably doesn't quite stack up, but the business case that really needs to be put to government is there is a real case for some support to assist with the capital investment, be that through mechanisms like the National Reconstruction Fund is one that really came to the top. That might help to make the commercial business case more feasible. And I think, you know, what we really need to emphasise to government is that 
if Australia had the ability to process or export 50% of the wool that we grow to diversified markets, that reduces our level of trade risk exposure by about $1.1 billion per annum. That's in the case of a foot and mouth disease outbreak. So there's some real economy-wide benefits that are not necessarily in the direct commercial interests of a private investor, but the Australian government could invest in, um, in that economy-wide risk mitigation. Adam Dawes, General Manager at Wool Producers Australia, ending that report from Josh Becker. Keeping you updated every day, the Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith. Where it's 25 past 12 news headlines and the weather not too far away. Let's head to the northwest now to a special patch of land behind Burnie. It's where centuries of Aboriginal land management with fire has created unique ecosystems full of rare species. The current managers, plantation company Forico, still use those techniques today to maintain the landscape, but say climate change is making it harder than ever. Meg Powell has the story. I'm standing in the middle of an ancient lava flow where the rich soil and the chilly Tasmanian air should be producing cool temperate rainforests, but it's not. It's actually a button grass plain. It looks a bit like a meadow or a park surrounded by thick bush. And researchers say it exists because of thousands of years of Aboriginal burning. We we're, uh, assume they, they burnt it for hunting purposes, obviously to keep areas open so they could travel through that environment. This is Adam Crook. Adam works for Forico, the forestry company that now manages the land. On a regular basis. Well, if we didn't burn, uh, we, would, we would eventually lose the grassland. So we're, we're just um, to the side of Fingerpost, which is off the Ridgely Highway, um, Waratah Road. We're in a grassland that's uh, approximately 345 hectares in size. We're surrounded by delicatensis, uh, dry forest uh, with a grassy woodland understory. And then to the side of that forest, we're now in um, button grass plain. I might be wrong here in this guess, but is this the kind of area that explorer Henry Hellier looked at and thought this would be perfect for sheep? Quite possibly. I, I know he, he certainly did at uh, Peak Plain and a few other grasslands. I'm sure he, look, he certainly looked at this one and, and introduced sheep, uh, but we all know that that didn't uh, do particularly well. So now, well, there's no sheep here, obviously. There's the occasional dead wallaby that we've seen and some eagles swooping around. But what is this land actually used for? Is it purely just a conservation area? Yep, purely conservation. So there's a lot of high conservation values in here. These are super unique, these grasslands in the Surrey Hills estate. So unique that they've got conservation covenants on them. That's how important they are. And, yeah, they provide habitat for rare and threatened uh, orchids, Tanara brown butterfly, just to name a few. Over time, those threatened species have come to rely on low-intensity, high-frequency burns, which Adam says he continues to do with input from Tasmanian Aboriginals. So we engage with the Aboriginal community. We get them involved in in the burning. Obviously, there's a science to, to... putting in a burn of this sort of size uh, but we try and uh, mimic what how they would have lit in the past but you know there's ways that we have to light to make it safe yeah it's definitely definitely a new space 
uh, and we've um, put on a, um, an Indigenous cadet forester in the last 12 months, and he's I've been mentoring um, Aaron, and um, yeah, he's you know loving the the exposure he's getting to being involved with grassland burning and just you know getting on country and and um, you know improving the the uh, the landscape. Vegetation expert Dr Magali Wright works to protect some of the plants found in this area and says the fire is important in maintaining biodiversity. If you have a look around here you can see that the grasses are in tussocks and then there's spaces between the tussocks and that's where we see the orchids and some of the other um, herbs and things that are important parts of the biodiversity. So in a tussock grassland, if you don't burn, or grazing is can be used as well, but maybe not quite as effectively as burning, you, the tussocks end up taking over and there's no spaces between the tussocks uh, and that's where that biodiversity of, of orchids and other, other herbs get pushed out. But timing is everything. Underneath these, these tussocks is peaty soil, which is really good at burning actually, but somehow it's not burning when we're setting these big fires what's going on again it's all about timing so um, the burning will be taking place at a time that there's enough moisture in the peat to avoid um, it catching fire so you know here where you're doing ecological burning it's to maintain the diversity between the tussocks too but also um you know, reducing the fuel load so to to avoid uh, the risk of a catastrophic wildfire. So if you had a fire go through here in the summer, you can imagine the peat igniting, and it, they just it just continues to burn. So there's a lot of stored carbon loss if that happens. So generally, spring with our grassland burning, um, we want obviously enough moisture in the surrounding forest. Uh, to create a bit of a fuel moisture differential that I talked about before. So it acts as a, essentially as a fire break, right? You light when the surrounding forest is wet, the fire reaches that point and then self-extinguishes. You can actually burn this grassland when there's knee-high deep water in here. Yeah, but we've walked across it now. It's super soft. You know how much moisture's in here. But Adam says that window of opportunity has been getting smaller. We haven't done much burning this season. It's been particularly dry, abnormally dry. Uh, normally, you know, we would have conducted you know 10 to 15 burns at this point uh, upwards of five six hundred hectares in a big year we might do a thousand hectares of grassland burning yeah so I'm, I've seen it like in the last five years how uh, that window is getting smaller and smaller every year you know this is the first time in 10 years that I haven't been able to do much burning in spring yeah it's going to make things a lot harder isn't it we're going to be restricted in how many burns that we can do and when we can do them we might have to revert to a bit more autumn burning but obviously the season's dragging dragging on longer too isn't it I love hearing those uh, bird sounds. That's Adam Crook ending that report by Meg Powell talking about using traditional cultural burning to both protect landscape from bushfires and increase biodiversity. Coming up in the second half of the program, uh, incentivising farmers to grow trees on farms. We'll take a look at a fresh round of funding available for farmers to integrate commercial trees within their agricultural enterprise. Richard Bailey, of course, will have the latest in livestock markets a bit closer to one. And you might have noticed uh, prices creeping up on some lines of fruit and vegetables in the supermarkets on the back of weather events in Queensland. This is also affecting charities too, so we'll hear from Food Bank shortly. But before that, let's get the all-important forecast for today. Michael Conway is on deck at the Bureau of Meteorology. 
Michael, any rain around? Hey, Larissa. Yeah, we had a, a little rain about the west uh, light falls uh, to put in the 24 hours to 9am. Top falls were at Mount Reed and Lake Margaret. They had four millimetres and Zian scored three millimetres. Since 9am, there's been a few scattered light showers about the west of less than a millimetre. The... Um, the weather that we, uh, the sunny weather we're having, will continue, uh, Larissa, for tomorrow similarly, and then on Friday we get a weak cold front coming over um, on in the evening, but then we're back to fine weather until uh, the next cold front comes through on Tuesday. Lovely. And what sort of temperatures? Uh, still in those sort of mid twenties to high twenties? Yeah, sure. Um, today is is a bit more subdued so 21 for Hobart and 26 for Launceston currently Hobart is at that 21 degrees um, and Launceston is at 22 but tomorrow's looking a little warmer around the mid 20s for for maximums and then uh, Friday before the cold front comes through it will be in the mid to high 20s Uh, the cold front comes through Saturday's cooler and then warms up again so quite a warm week ahead. Okay and what are the winds doing if you want to take your boat out this afternoon? Yeah, sure. So generally the winds about the state today, we've got westerlies at 10 to 20 knots, very simple to describe, and afternoon sea breezes. Tomorrow it's a bit more complex, so we've got western northwesterlies, all the winds are at 10 to 20 knots, western northwesterlies in the southwest, west to southwesterlies in the northwest, northwest to northeasterlies elsewhere, um, and also reaching up to 30 knots about, at times about the lower east in the afternoon. There will also be afternoon sea breezes about. The swell's about for the west and south for today are west to southwesterly at two to three metres, easing off to about one and a half to two and a half metres tomorrow. Today, uh, today in the north, a westerly swell of around metre, easing to just two one metre tomorrow. E- um, in the east, a southerly of around one metre and a northeasterly less than one metre. Tomorrow, it, it ups a bit to southerly at one to one and a half metres. Uh, any warnings around? Yeah, tomorrow we've got a a strong wind warning out for the Lower East Coast and that's the only warning uh, for the two days. Excellent. Too easy. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Larissa. Michael Conway there at the Bureau of Meteorology. Start your day with the voice of your community. Join your local ABC team and keep up to date on the latest news, weather, sports and events in your area. And we want to hear from you. Share your views, connect with your neighbours and speak to the community. Call, text or email us your opinions, questions and personal stories. Don't miss out on the best way to start your day. ABC Breakfast, every weekday morning from 6 and live on the ABC Listen app. You're with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, if you've ever thought about growing trees on your farm, you might be eligible to get some financial help to do it. Private Forest Tasmania has $450,000 in the bank to help farmers with upfront costs of establishing commercial trees in their agricultural enterprise. His CEO of PFT, Elizabeth Pichakowski, explaining how it'll work. So the STEMS for CO2 2024 grants program is being led by Private Forest Tas and it's involving a co-investment from PFT farmers and the Tasmanian State Government Renewables, Climate and Future Industries Tasmania Department, so RECFIT, and it's basically funding to enable um, STEMS in ground uh, specifically for carbon abatement. Who's eligible to apply? There's a a whole list of um, 
guidelines on our website, which I'd refer people to go and check. But it's basically farmers who um, have got property that they might be um, already farming, whether it's crops or animals, um, and they've got capacity to maybe integrate some commercial trees on their property. It might be that someone hasn't actually gone down the path of doing that before just because it's not probably their cup of tea or they haven't done it, not experienced in it. But this uh, particular grant is that kind of upfront assistance. So there's some money that's brought up straight up, which allows that establishment of the plantation. And then there's some support that's ongoing. So being able to put those trees in an um, agricultural landscape where there's already an existing um, enterprise going on. So how much money is available to landholders and, and do they have to match it as well? Yeah, so in total, there's 450000 available and we're looking at approximately 2500 per hectare. So that um, we're looking at having matched by the landowner by 50%, which then allows that kind of establishment to happen and then the ongoing um, maintenance as well. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there's cash that needs to be put up front, but it can be also in-kind support. So, for example, a lot of farmers have already got machinery, you know, for ploughing, spraying or any other kind of maintenance, so they can input via that avenue as well. So these grants will be applicable for planting the following season, uh, not not planting trees in 2024? Correct. So there's um, a time frame that we're working towards. Um, hopefully we'll be, we'll be closing this expression of interest, which is currently open on the 1st of March, and then there'll be a shortlisting process to look at all the applicants, and there'll be a, a panel, which is also going to be used to assist in that process to make sure that um, we get Um, areas that are going to be set up for success going forward. What else can be done to incentivise tree plantings on farms? It's definitely um, an element of communication and education um, to farmers. And I guess what I'm seeing through my last few years in the industry is that the next generation are very conscious of sustainability and sustainable farming practice and that whole being diverse and diversification so being able to communicate the benefits of of trees on farms in an agricultural landscape Um, so again we're not making more land but you know there are vast areas throughout Tassie that are existing um, cleared farmland there's still capacity for for trees to be implemented on those farms whether it's as as shelter belts as blocks or areas that are you know not suitable particularly for crops or grazing, but can still sustain timber trees. So being able to get that message across of being able to integrate, and it doesn't have to be hugely commercial scales. It you know, can be the mum and dad, um, small to medium farm owners that can integrate trees onto their properties. Is there anything else coming up for landholders in relation to uh, private forest Tasmania? Yeah, sure. So I would um, definitely take the opportunity to uh, put a plug in for the Grassroots Festival and that's on the 14th and the 15th of Feb. So that's um, back end of the next week. And that's a um, an immersive boots on the ground, hands in the soil, two-day session event 
um, hosted at the Gunningham family farm. So they've gone ahead, they've actually organised it and we're supporting it um, and we'll have Private Forest has people there. They're actually one of the um, sites that put in a demonstration farm, demonstration planting as a part of our previous program. Then there's also a, a field day, trees on farms, carbon environmental economic benefits, which being is being run with the Tasmania Land Conservancy. And that's being held on the 20th of March at Spring Hill in the Midlands. And then, of course, we'll be present at AgFest as well. And, of course, there's always um, our website that we refer people to as well. Dr Elizabeth Pierczykowski, CEO of Private Forest Tasmania. Well, weather events in Australia are having significant impacts on supply food chains. But it isn't just supermarkets and consumers that rely on growers and producers, but not-for-profit organisations as well. Chief Operating Officer for Food Bank Australia, Sarah Pennell, says weather events are having a major impact on their food supply. Well, it's a mixed bag for us at Food Bank and, and in terms of the food relief sector generally. Because in some instances, it is a challenge for us. We aren't you know, able to access food in the way that we normally can. And often, you know, there's a requirement to get food to places that we're not normally reaching out to. And there's the logistics there. So in terms of disasters, there's so much for us to be thinking about. Uh, can we get the, the explicit food and, and stocks that are needed in times of disaster? And can we get them to where they are needed? You know, we're subject to exactly the same access issues that anybody else is with regard to, you know, an area that's been flooded or had bushfires or whatever. So all of that is something we have to think about when it's, it comes to, you know, meeting the demand. But on the flip side, supply chain disruption that is, is caused by disaster events can sometimes provide windfalls for us. So where a supply chain is being disrupted by a flood, for instance, it might mean that stock that was intended to go from the east coast to the west coast or vice versa can't, and therefore it's made available to us. So we've had a number of instances uh, in recent times, the flooding in South Australia that caused disruption to the road and rail link to the west actually meant food was made available to us on the east coast that was never going to make it over to the west in time. So it's a mixed bag and the issue for Food Bank is being flexible and being able to respond to these unexpected events. Often in times of disaster, we need to be very light on our feet when it comes to knowing what to do. And are these type of events something that you've noticed Food Bank is having to deal with more commonly, not even just the extreme weather events, but one-off storms can significantly impact the amount of produce available? Absolutely. It's impacting in one way, shape or form on an ongoing basis now. So we're, we're aware that, you know, particular fresh produce may be in short supply or may be in abundant supply because of various weather events. And we need to be able to cater for that and, and respond appropriately. What we saw during COVID was a relaxation in the quality specifications for fresh produce so that supermarkets could keep product on shelf. That had a negative impact for us because that stock that normally was unacceptable for sale would come to us, but now it was going to sale. So as I say, it's just such a complex issue and how we might be affected in any given situation.